Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, Lime Ninjas. This is Lime Ninja Radio, where we help you navigate confidently through your own personal Lime journey. Everybody's journey is different, and a cookie-cutter approach just won't work for Lyme disease. You need ninja skills. I'm your host and acupuncturist, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 142 with Lyme expert and neurologist, Dr. Elena Frid. Also, welcome with me to the studio, our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. We need some sort of like cheering soundtrack. I know. <laughs> some sound effects going on. There we go. Hi. In this episode, you will learn about how Dr. Frid was introduced to Lyme disease by listening to her patients, how you can get Lyme disease even in New York City, and why she can let her kids play on the grass without worrying now. That's an amazing thing. <laughs> Hence, she started a small business with, uh, you'll, you'll be interested to hear what it is there. And also, we're introducing a new short segment. We're calling it Ninja Nugget. And it's one of the things that, one of the items that we highlight in our email each week, the Ninja Nugget. So if you're not on our email list, just go on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and sign up for our email list. And this week's, one of this week's featured Ninja Nugget is, Aurora, why don't you introduce it? Oh, the CDC news release that unproven treatments are killing people. Yes, because we all know that the CDC has all the answers and is healing everybody from Lyme disease, so they feel it necessary to go out and bash people who are actually in the field trying to help people that the CDC says don't have any problems. Everybody in the Lyme community has heard about this and read the different news releases, uh, articles that came out uh, uh, from the CDC. And the best comment I heard was an insight that the CDC is starting to pave the way for the introduction of new treatment guidelines. And that sounded like uh, really what they were going for. They're just starting to seed or prep the soil for these new guidelines. And I think that's probably what they were going to do. The other thing that just actually frosted me, and I'm sure everybody read about this too, they didn't talk about the problem with the treatments. What they talk about was adverse events with treatment. So the, they highlighted somebody dying from an infection from an infected pick line. Now that can happen and does happen in hospitals all the time. And the CDC isn't going after hospitals for doing unproven treatment. They're just really trying to sling mud all over the place in the Lyme community. And we don't appreciate it. That's for yeah. sure. So if you want to stay in the loop with these Ninja Nuggets, we're always searching for interesting things. Sometimes they're fun facts. Sometimes they're serious ones like this. But sign up for our newsletter and you'll be sure to get them. The weekly Ninja Nuggets. Aurora puts those together and she does a great job. Thank you very much. Also, (laughs) you're welcome. Also, a quick note, we are starting up our Lime Ninja Keto Challenge again. And to do that, we'll be giving away a month's supply of the ketone supplement, Keto OS, chocolate flavor. Chocolate flavor. So if you're interested in getting a free month of Keto OS and what the benefits are, are ketones, also go over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and check that out. 
Okay, Aurora, tell us a little bit more about today's guest, Dr. Frid. Uh, Dr. Elena Frid is a board-certified neurologist and a clinical neurophysiologist, widely regarded as investigating diagnostician, advisor, and a treatment strategist specializing in infection-induced autoimmune disorders. Pioneering the field of autoimmune neurology, she often sees patients, both children and adults, with complex cases of Lyme disease and co-infections, resulting in multiple neurological complaints. Thanks, Aurora. And here is our interview with Dr. Elena Frid. Let's start off with why neurology? Medicine's a big, wide-open field, and what attracted you to this specialty? Uh, so, neurology is probably one of the only specialties, though, uh, that really relies uh, very heavily on history taking and physical exam. Uh, so I thought, I found that very interesting and typically when you think of people who go into neurology, these are the people who kind of like puzzles and mysteries. Um, and I, I like to, I guess, talk to people and diagnose them with things that other subspecialties may have not thought of. And then is that why the great interest in Lyme disease? Because, I mean, that's just such a setup. <laughs> uh, well, the great interest in Lyme disease actually came from patients. Uh, patients actually taught me uh, about this disorder, and that happened very soon after I graduated from my training program. Uh, I would say within a month or so, I started seeing kind of these odd patients that didn't seem psychiatric per se, but really didn't fit into any specific neurologic or medical diagnosis. And they started bringing in articles and telling me about organizations such as ILADS, and I started attending conferences and talking to other physicians in the field and kind of just listening to the patients, what worked for them, who did they go to, what didn't work. And that kind of delved me into uh, the Lyme world. And then I was introduced to Dr. Charles Ray Jones. Actually, I've seen him uh, on that famous movie, um, Under Our Skin. And he really um, kind of resonated with me, and I've shadowed a number of physicians in the field and really thought that his way of thinking um, was was the right thing to kind of to pursue further. And uh, I've shadowed him for about a year. Uh, and then, again, as I said, attended a couple of ILATS conferences, and uh, the rest is history. I guess I'm now a Lyme specialist. <laughs> Thank goodness. So I have a couple of <laughs> questions about that. And the first one is, what was it about his approach that really resonated with you that seemed, you know, this is the right way to go about this? Yeah. So what um, what I was seeing in his practice and now in my own uh, the way I approach patient, patients are you need to identify everything that's going on with the patient and treat it all at the same time. Otherwise, you're not treating anything effectively. And that is the approach that he's been taking for the last four decades, and that's the approach that I've been taking for the last six years of my practice. 
So that can be ridiculously complicated because somebody with Lyme coming in can present with what? A half dozen, dozen separate issues, correct? Correct. That's why there's, you know, that's why when I talk to patients, I say to them, there's no protocol because it has to be individualized. You have to identify what's happening to them and treat it all. And so there, there, there can't be one protocol that affects you know, that can be treating effectively patients. I guess that's the protocol. (laughs) Identify everything and treat it all at the same time. That's the protocol, whatever that means to that specific patient. It sounds like a very uh, Asian, Chinese type of the the (laughs) no protocol protocol. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Now, so my other question early on, so your practice is in New York City. Mm -hmm. Now, where where are these people getting Lyme from? Now, I'm from upstate New York. Well, way upstate New York, up up past Albany and, and to the left there. Uh, but where, I mean, New York City, you don't think of people in New York City as having real exposure to tick-borne illnesses. Where were these people getting Lyme or were they traveling from all over to come to you? Well, first of all, uh, my practice is national and international. On a daily basis, I see patients from all over the country uh, and often from other parts of the world. The other thing is uh, I think it's a false sense of security to think that in New York City uh, we don't have Lyme. Uh, I know that actually a coworker uh, of mine in the office just told me today that he was on a golf course in the Bronx and a colleague of his that he was golfing with found a tick on him. So it is in New York and in New York parks and golf courses as well. So I think that people need to be vigilant and aware of this and know that, you know, Lyme has been reported in all 50 states. And I was just recently in Canada, in Ottawa, speaking on the Hill um, to talk, raise awareness about Lyme disease in in Canada. And I thought it was very appropriate for uh, one of the speakers to say that, look, in New York State, we have at least 30,000 uh, reported cases of Lyme disease per year, and the ticks don't stand at the border with the passport. <laughs> so obviously if it's in New York and we're bordering Canada, it's going to be in Canada as well. And likewise, for example, uh, earlier in May, I was doing a talk in um, Ohio, and Pennsylvania is the number one state for the last seven years with having Lyme disease and tick, tick exposure. And so, and Ohio supposedly doesn't have any ticks. Right. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. So we just need to put on our thinking hats and realize that ticks don't, you know, observe the state borders. Yes. <laughs> and we are at risk if we're doing outdoor activities, we're at risk. Yes. One of when I do talks locally, I bring up the veterinary numbers, the canine cases and say, okay, there have been 250,000 reported canine cases and they're only well, that's I'm trying to the the numbers are more like in our county. So just a small county up here in Ida County. It's more like there are 5000 cases uh, in 2014 and Mm -hmm. human cases were reported with 30. Now. I'm not saying that there are going to be 5,000 human cases, but there are probably more than 30 cases around. 
The, Absolutely the, the correct. Dis, the disparity is, is shocking. And actually, you bring up an excellent point, and that's something that I educate patients uh, all the time on, that if you want to know the incidence of Lyme disease in a population, go talk to your local veterinarian because it's much less politicized disease in the veterinary world. And if your dogs or pets are being affected, then you're at risk as well. So speaking of that risk of the family pet having Lyme disease, and, you know, they can get it so we, they can get the tick so easily. And we talk about, you know, the deer being the main vector, but there's so many other vectors. And then the deer drop the tick, the ticks drop off the deer. They get picked up by mice and so forth and so on, birds and what, whatever else, and bring them close to the house. And the animal, like your dog, can bring them in the house. Now, you're a mom, and you mm-hmm. saw a need for an easier way to repel ticks. So you came up with this clothing line that you're launching. Tell me about what inspired that and what exactly it does and how can people take a look at this? Well, the issue is I have two kids. One is eight and one is three. Congratulations, and by my the way. Three, thank you. And my three-year-old hasn't touched grass because of my work and I'm, how concerned I am. And I, I thought that was pathologic as well. So there has to be... Yes. There has to be, you know, some, some, somewhere in the middle where we're vigilant about thinking about Lyme disease and other really vector-borne illnesses, um, as well as being able to enjoy the outdoors. So, um, part, it was actually a collective effort from my kids and my husband that we created this Dr. Frid, um, kids wear, uh, where you basically put on, um, mesh uh, jacket and pants uh, that's very breathable and light and would be appropriate um, for for summers and spring time and um, that actually is embedded with insect shield technology uh, which has been used by the U.S. military and mandated by the U.S. military uh, since 2009 uh, because they've realized that insects can carry diseases and affect military personnel. And so we're using the same technology to protect our kids um, to reduce the chance of being exposed to different infections through insects, not just ticks, but also mosquitoes, ants, flies, and other um, other insects as well. Up here, a little farther north, we get uh, black flies in the early spring, and they're just vicious, nasty right. critters. So anything to keep those things away, as well as the ticks and the mosquitoes. That's right. And the because fleas. everyone also <laughs> went crazy over Zika. Of course. Uh, which is, you know, which is a concern, but uh, to compare it to Lyme disease, it's really negligible. Um, but nevertheless, it does protect from um, insects such as mosquitoes, uh, not only ticks. So here's, here's uh, just a complete aside, um, because I can't help but notice your beautiful accent. Where are you from, or where is your family oh, from? 
<laughs> so I was actually born uh, in Siberia, ah. where we we do also have ticks. <laughs> really, even even up there? Yes, well, it's a little bit like upstate. Yes. You know, after this, we should talk a little bit because uh, my my brother married a Siberian girl who's also a doctor. She's down in Allentown, Pennsylvania. So uh-huh. I'm one anyway. It's it's, yeah. it's funny. So. Well, welcome to the U.S. A little late, but thank welcome. you. Yeah. Well, I've been here since '93, so I oh, really yeah. consider myself yeah. American, Russian-speaking American. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was going to say I wonder if she's Bosnian or because we have a lot of Bosnian immigrants up here. But then I was also thinking Russian because you do sound Russian. But I don't want to. Yeah. Last time I said Russian, the the person said no, I'm Bosnian. I was like, oh no, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, you don't want to make a mistake. No, 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 no not like that. <laughs> anyway, so um, here's so here's my next question for you: is because you see all these difficult cases, you kind of have you positioned your practice as uh, you know, I see these difficult cases, and I really want to dive in and take in depth histories. And this is, I know you don't have actual numbers, but how how many misdiagnosed people do you think are out there? Well, these numbers actually, the ILADS organization, um, which is, um, you know, kind of the opposite of what the CDC and IDSA guidelines are, mm-hmm. um, they uh, quote numbers of uh, one to three million. New cases, uh, so misdiagnosis. Of, uh, cases, per- of, uh, cases of Lyme disease in the United States where the CDC is quoting a little over 300,000 uh, new cases yeah. of Lyme disease annually. Yeah. Um, a, a lot of the ILADS physicians believe that it may be close to 1 to 3 million, which is a huge range yes. because it's very hard. I mean, we're, we're talking about people who suffer from a lot of developmental problems uh, that may have, infections-induced processes induced by things like Lyme disease and co-infections. For example, uh, ADD, learning disabilities, autism-type symptoms. These type of conditions in children can be uh, induced by infections. I am not saying that 100% of these kids are uh, suffering from Lyme disease, but I'm thinking that a significant portions of them are and should be checked for it. Uh, disorders such as neurodegenerative disorders, ALS, MS, Parkinson's disease, dementias, Alzheimer's, these people need to be looked at as Lyme. Some of them need to be looked at Lyme patients. And can you even consider the fact that we can reverse Alzheimer's disease? That would be a phenomenal statement. And is it even possible? And if we see that this is from an infectious ideology, then it is a consideration. Um, things like neuropsychiatric disorders. Mm-hmm. A lot of these patients are diagnosed with psychiatric illnesses and in and out of psychiatric wards. Young kids, 
adults, older uh, individuals as well. You know, anytime that someone has a psychiatric disorder that's intractable to regular treatment options and protocols, we need to consider that there may be an underlying process that's going on and an infectious process, an autoimmune process needs to be considered because these people will be treated completely differently in terms of their medical management. I want to pause this interview for a second and make sure everybody knows about the Lime Ninja Radio Keto Challenge. The Keto Challenge is a wonderful way to try exogenous ketones. And as Betsy Walker from Dickinson, Texas says, since I've been on a ketogenic diet again in combination with Keto OS, I've had several lost memories return. In addition, I've also noticed that loud noises no longer bother me. Now, we all know a ketogenic diet can help with your focus, energy, strength, sleep, inflammation, mood, basically all the things that get affected with Lyme disease. And adding exogenous ketones is an easy way to boost your ketone levels without having to be quite as strict on the diet. Or even if you are strict on the diet and you're having trouble getting your ketone numbers up, that's one way that you can do it. So go on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and check out the Lime Ninja Radio Keto Challenge. Now back to our interview. This goes without saying, and it needs to be said, when you and I and I, lads, and the Lyme community says Lyme disease, we mean Lyme and the co-infection. So Borreliosis and Babesiosis and Bart, all the above. So that's important, too, just because it's not Borrelia burgdorferi infection, right? Borreliosis. That's correct. It could be another infection that's causing very similar type of of symptoms. That's right. So when I'm talking about Lyme disease that can cause all of those symptoms that we just discussed, it's a collection of infections, unrelenting inflammation, and an autoimmune response. It's those three things that lead people to these devastating neurologic presentations and even cardiologic problems and other symptoms that we all know these patients have. Now, let's talk about that a little bit because that was part of your paper to ILADS, your presentation to ILADS. Is that mm-hmm. correct? The autoimmune mm-hmm. feature of this. Now, and yeah. bef- no, you know what? Let me just, I'll let you, why don't you tell us uh, what you presented there, a, a, a short version of that, and then I have some questions. Sure. I was talking about um, how patients who have persistent symptoms of Lyme disease, uh, they may benefit from treatment with IVIG uh, because they uh, have an autoimmune component that has awakened uh, due to the infectious process. And then can you explain exactly what that treatment entails? Yes, so IVIG is an infusion of immunoglobulins, and usually when I explain to patients uh, about what's happening is that imagine your body is at war, okay, and so you have now soldiers that have been at war for such a long time that they're no longer effective. They're not only fighting the bad guys and not very well, but they are also fighting the civilians and kind of looting the local community. So what the IVIG does is taking these soldiers and putting handcuffs on them so they could stop looting the community and destroying um 
kind of the good guys and the civilians and allowing your body to heal. So it essentially, um, for lack of a better word, word it uh, boosts your immune system, but in a way where it allows your body to heal itself. So it's not, is it down-regulating the immune system or just down-regulating parts of it? No, it's actually modulating your Modul- immune okay, system. That's a so way. it's yeah. a, yes, it's allowing your body to work the way it should. Right. And so it's interrupting some of these chronic inflammation pathways that get in, stuck in a loop. Is that right? And specifically, autoimmune, which is autoimmune, meaning your own body is attacking itself. So when we stop that from happening, you can heal. So, is so there's different autoimmune phenomena, right? Yes. We think about lupus. MS, thyroid problems, these are all autoimmune phenomena. They're just called different ways because they affect different portions of your body. Mm-hmm. And, and can we get into specifics a little bit? So in the immune processes uh, that are being modulated here, is this, is this the innate immune system? Is this the mature immune system? Is it the, the cells themselves, like the killer cells and the T cells and all this stuff, or is it, or is it inflammatory processes and like the non-specific? So or is it? I, I really, I think it's a combination okay. uh, that's that's happening. It's not just one thing, and this is why. Um, this is the important portion of what I want to say, and I think that was autoimmune neurology specifically has become um, this new uh, phenomenon in neurology. And so there's a lot of different institutions that are opening up um, kind of subspecialty in this field. But what's new and what I'm saying right now is that I believe that this is an infections-induced process. So if it's an infections-induced process, that means there's an active infection. It's not a post-infectious, it's not idiopathic, meaning we don't know why it's happening. Because if you don't recognize the fact that a person has an active infection, what happens is this autoimmune process continues to occur because it's being driven by an infection that's not being treated. And what happens, the person's in the hamster wheel. They could never get out of it because even if you treat the immune process appropriately, it keeps being driven by the infectious component. And so you need to identify the infections, treat them appropriately, and if a person within three to six months is not getting better, you need to consider and work them up for an autoimmune disorder and treat that in conjunction with treating their infections. May I ask, where do you send your, uh, your, what labs do you use to identify the Borrelia and its okay. co-infections. So I actually uh, typically use three labs uh, all at the same time. I use a local lab that is Northwell. It's one of the healthcare systems around, but you could think of it as Quest or LabCorp. Um, then I use Igenix and I use Galaxy. 
I, I, the reason why that's done is because a lot of the times the organisms are very elusive and are difficult to identify. And specifically early on in the disease process, um, a person's immune system may not have developed enough antibodies um, to diagnose you with any one of these conditions or later on in the disease process, when a person's immune system is overwhelmed, you may have uh, issues identifying uh, the infections as well, because ultimately the test is in an indirect way of identifying these infections. And so I think it's important for listeners to know that, you know, a lot of the times, up to 50% of the time, and potentially even more, depending on when you test them, they may have an inaccurate test. And usually it will be a false negative test, which gives a false sense of security uh, to uh, both patients and physicians thinking that, you know, they don't have the infection. And I always say that if you tested negative for this, for these infections, but you live in a high-risk area and do high-risk activities, you need to recheck yourself. You know, just like someone who's had chest pain six months ago, had a normal EKG, if they have chest pain six months later, your doctor is going to order another EKG. Well, order another blood test to check for Lyme. It sounds so and common sense. The, I mean, why? You know, yeah. it's just basic thinking, right? But you're so right. Oh, no, it couldn't exactly. be Lyme disease. Last year I tested I, for Lyme disease and I came back negative. Correct. Ugh. The other thing that makes me insane is hearing from uh, the CDC side that there's so many Paul, excuse me, false positives. Like where where are they getting that information from? Well, the, the information I think is from the narrow definition of Lyme disease, uh, because remember, it's right. It's your headache. It's a fever. It's um, some fatigue potentially joint aches and a rash. So that's the definition of Lyme disease. When someone comes to you with, let's say, a Parkinsonian symptoms or cognitive impairment or learning disability or severe pains all over the place, you know, that's no longer the Lyme disease that was defined by CDC in the 1970s. And so that's where I think the disconnect is. And and the problem is, is something that you've mentioned before is that really we need to be renaming this disorder because it's much more complex than just the one Borrelia burgdorferi infection. Right, right. But that's that's really the problem with you know with the the definition is the problem. Yeah, you know that's the first time I've heard somebody bring up that part of the the process and the definition of a disease is so very important and that. It hasn't been updated is uh, is interesting. Let's put it that way, right? It's interesting. Yeah. I also want to mention, and I think I'm sure you talk about this as well, but the rash. Yes. You know, a rash, if, if you have a bullseye rash, that was really a gift from God <laughs> that something is wrong and go get treated. Yes. Because so often people don't get a rash. It's so uncommon. And actually... About only 20% of patients do get any type of rash with a tick bite or with Lyme disease. But the, the bullseye rash is actually the most uncommon out of all the rashes that one would get. So, again, looking for that rash, both physicians and patients should know 
that's not a common presentation of this disease. So don't, you know, just because you don't have a rash doesn't mean you don't have the disease. Yes, I want to emphasize that point too. When I was bit 15 years ago, I was blessed, as you say, with a bullseye Mm -hmm. rash uh, within days after the the bite. And uh, I do feel so very lucky because I was able to get treatment immediately. And just recently I had a friend not too far from here in, in Cooperstown and she was bit and she got a nonspecific rash and she had very difficult time. She had all the flu symptoms too. I mean, she, it was clear she was infected with something and she still had trouble getting any antibiotic at all. And the doctors who refused to treat her were essentially, well, you know, maybe it's a spider bite. And if it is Lyme, the test won't be accurate because you don't have any body. So let's wait a month or so and then we'll retest you and then we'll go from there. And I'm, I'm over the phone and through the text messages, he says, no, go find somebody right now. Anybody who'll give you antibiotics because you, you don't, don't let it go. So it's, I agree. It's it, it should be, it should be, uh, and is a clinical diagnosis because the testing is so inaccurate and the definition of the disease is not what we see day to day. Now, do you, are you keeping an eye on the new tests coming through? And what is your thinking on how soon we'll get to see some of those? Like in your, in your office, will you have a, a test? You know, I, I mean, I would be happy to, uh, entertain any new testing. I'm not sure how I'm, I'm trying out, um, a couple of tests again, comparing using Igenics. Uh, as my gold standard, which is a good test. It's not, you know, an amazing test. Right. I think everyone would agree with that. Of course, I would love to see a better test, more of a direct test, culturing, um, culturing out the bacteria, like Advanced Labs, for example, is doing that. Um, but it does take a long time because it's a very slow-growing bacteria. Right. And so... It, it may take, you know, four months to get the test result back. So, again, go, goes back to the point where this is a clinical diagnosis. You may suspect it, so you need to start treatment, and you may get your test results back in, in months. So, right now, it's not, you know, it, it's not something that I use main mainstream on a day-to-day basis. Right. Well, you're, you're wise. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many problems. Have you used the the Armin Labs at all in Germany? Have you ever sent anything over there? I haven't sent uh, myself personally, but I have patients who come in with uh, the test results from Armin Labs because they're from London or Germany or other places uh-huh. in Europe. Uh, and and it's it's a good lab. Uh, I think there's some validity to it. I personally. Um, you know, this is very medical, but I I add certain other antibodies that are that are not tested uh, in the lab. And like I said, I mean, it's a lot of legwork for the patients because I'm sending them to three labs at the same time. Would I love it to be just one test? Of course I would. Right. But it's not available right now. We're not, right, we're not there yet. Do you know no. the group out of Phoenix, TGen, and their their work? They were supposed to be going into clinical trials this spring, and Horowitz was part of the people testing it, and I think Stram was as well. But I haven't heard anything. I don't know if they've had a setback. or. 
I have not heard. Are they using PCR or are they using Western blood? What are they no, using? You know, and I apologize because I don't remember the exact technology. It was uh, either uh, RNA. I think it was RNA fragments that they were looking okay. at. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. If, I don't know if that's PCR. Or what? It definitely wasn't uh, uh, Western blot. Well, that would be great because, right, if you're identifying the DNA of the bug in your blood, you know, all bets are off. Exactly. <laughs> it's there. Let's treat it. <laughs> so, um, that, yeah, so I would love to have a better test. Now, what final question for you, and then I'll give you the floor again to, to wrap things up. What do you think of persist of this conversation about persister cells, and how do you uh, approach that in your clinic? Okay, so that's actually a, a very good question, and again, goes back to the thing that we started with, identifying everything that's going on and treating it all at the same time. I think that's the takeaway point of this discussion that I'd like everyone to know of. And the other main point is that people need to be treated for a long enough period of time. So, again, there's no protocol um, because we know that three three weeks of antibiotics doesn't take care uh, of, you know, of symptoms for a lot of patients who've had chronic illness for a long time. And the the whole issue of persisters is, in my opinion, knowing, you know, when is the right time to stop treatment, right? And yes. and the issue is is that this bacteria, like we just talked about, is a very slow multiplying organism. So, for example, when we talk about E. coli for a UTI, right, if somebody has had um, a urinary tract infection, typically within um, 10 to 14 days of antibiotics for a urinary tract infection, you kill off uh, probably 10 to 14 life cycles of that bacteria. If the Borrelia species multiplies once a month, you know, how long do you need to kill off a significant portion of them? So you see how typically people will probably need to be on treatment for many months versus six weeks or, you know, even two months, things like that. So it really should be individualized. And so from the standpoint of persisters, I think that people can be treated appropriately. It's just that they need to be treated long enough until their symptoms go away. And I feel that a lot of times they are discontinuing treatment too soon. That's is very well said. It's such an important part. I just interviewed Holly Ahern, who's just kind of up the throughway from you at SUNY Adirondack, and she said something very similar. And uh, mm-hmm. it's such an important aspect of the the bacteria that it's much more like yeah. t- t- TB than uh, yes than uh, the, what, like you said, E. coli. And just that's just that mm-hmm. simple fact. It's like, so here's the other thing that's insane. I don't know if there are some of the local doctors around you are doing, but they're starting now with a two-day two day prophylactic antibiotic. Mm-hmm. And like in what world does a two-day prophylactic work for anything? No. So I also talk about this and I say that, and I, I believe that this is the standpoint from uh, the ILADs as well. Uh, that 
uh, there's no morning after pill, quote unquote, <laughs> for for Lyme. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so if you've had a tick bite, you tested the tick. It it has a bunch of infections. Um, you know, or you are in an endemic area that you know that most of the tick, 80 to 90 percent of ticks are affected, right? In our, in the Northeast, in Connecticut, 90 percent of ticks in some areas are affected. You know, if you live in those areas, you need to be presumed that the tick did feed and uh, passed on the infection, and you need to be treated as if you had Lyme disease. And that should be a minimum of six to eight weeks until you don't have any symptoms. Dr. Fridge, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much. And I'd like to leave you with the opportunity. If somebody out there listening wants to get hold of you in your office for a consultation, how can they do that? Absolutely. You can visit my website to learn more about some of the things that I talked about here, as well as, um, you know, getting through some educational websites, uh, through my, uh, through my website, which is elenafridmd.com. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. This was a, this was a wonderful episode and, what she said about why she came to the field of neurology in the first place, uh, that she liked putting together puzzles and things like that. I think that's so telling. I think the really good Lyme literate doctors, I mean, I guess really good doctors in general, but the really good Lyme literate doctors have that kind of mindset as well, that kind of, hmm, this isn't all fitting together. What if we shift the the jigsaw piece around a little bit? Exactly. And that's old-fashioned clinicians. I think many doctors have that personality. It's just been scheduled out of them. I just went to see a doctor yesterday, a GP, about my arm, and I was one of those patients that came in with a diagnosis and say, here's what it is, and they, he, he was very kind and he didn't dismiss me completely. He didn't throw me out of his office, but he also has to do his job to, to start from the beginning. And we got into discussing about doctors being hired by hospital groups and he had been working for a hospital group and left. And now he's part of the own private physician group and just talking about how stifling the environments are within these hospital groups and they're managed by accountants. You know, hospitals are not primary care facilities. They're, they're emergency care and they're bottom line driven. So it's really, we're really trying to find our way through the, this new healthcare. Uh, system that needs to be recreated and it's it's tough on everybody so i anyway i'm defending docs here a little bit saying that many of them have this inquiring mind but many of them also don't have the time to be able to they don't have the the institutional support to be able to display that to to exercise to let that inquiring mind office leash so we don't get to see it nearly often enough that's that's completely fair. I mean, I have I have friends who are co- going into medical school and they wouldn't have gone they're not going through 6 to 10 years of just brutal training if they didn't absolutely a both care about 
people and wanting them to be well and be wanting to fix things, you know? Right. But right. You take a good person, you put them in a bad system and you get a good person in in a a bad bad system system. Mm -hmm. and the nobody's happy. The system isn't happy because the margins are so small. It's very tough to make money and stay in business. The doctors aren't happy because they're squeezed and rushed and being pushed from all sides. And the patients aren't happy because they're getting crappy care. So it's really, it's something's got to give here. Something has got to give. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll see what happens in the next 10 to 20 years. It's going to be an interesting time. What the Chinese say? May you live in interesting times. The Chinese curse. The Chinese curse. All right. If you like what we are doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, we'd appreciate it if you would support our efforts by subscribing. Go to LimeNinjaRadio.com and you'll see the subscribe button under the featured episode. Also, we are starting back up the Lime Ninja Radio Keto Challenge. And if you haven't yet tried a ketogenic diet or if you'd like to support your ketogenic diet, Diet with exogenous ketones. That means ketones that come from outside your body. It really can be a boost to how you're feeling and your healing. A ketogenic diet is probably the most anti-inflammatory or the least inflammatory diet out there. A vegetarian diet can be similar in effect, but in the long term of the vegetarian diet, it's difficult to get all the nutrients you need. So I don't recommend a vegetarian diet for the long term. All right, Aurora, let's have the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Everyone knows the speed of light. Only ninjas know the speed of darkness. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.